0: Hi there. My name's Erin, and I'm a reporter for a newspaper in Fort Collins, Colorado. For those of you who don't know much about Fort Collins, it's probably safe to characterize it as a safe, picturesque, growing city in northern Colorado. We have a vibrant downtown, and arts and music scene, we're home to bustling new businesses, and it's Colorado, we're nestled in the foothills with access to hiking and biking trails. It's all good in the choice city. But it's not perfect. No city is perfect. So I'm here to talk to you about a dark chapter in the city's history. But that's probably the wrong way to say it, chapter. That kind of implies that it somehow ended, that we've moved on. But this story isn't going to give you closure. It's going to leave you with questions. Where was she that night? Who did she see? Who did she talk to? Who did she call? It all starts on the morning of February 11th, with the gruesome discovery of a murdered and mutilated woman in what was then just another sleepy college town. This story is about Peggy Hetrick, it's about her last night alive, it's about the morning a 15-year-old kid stumbled upon her body in a Fort Collins field, and it's about how events in those early days of her murder investigation changed this city forever. For the Coloradoan, I'm Aaron Udell, and this is People vs. Masters, Making a murder in Fort Collins.
1: Now, as I understand it, you're the, you're the one that found the uh, victim down there, is that right? The police well, let's see here. Here's a kid who finds a body in a field that doesn't call the police. We don't think that story they makes sense. They the physical evidence. They had to be in the call. The lie, lie, and
2: deny. You know, it's just one of those things that really doesn't happen in Fort Collins.
0: Hi there. Uh, again, my name is Erin Udell. I'm a reporter here at the Coloradoan, mainly covering art and entertainment in Fort Collins. I also have a Netflix account, like most of you out there, and I came across a popular show called Making a Murderer recently. It's pretty compelling stuff, and it's a 10-part documentary series delving into the life of a man named Stephen Avery, a Manitowoc County, Wisconsin guy who ends up in the early 80s being convicted of a crime he didn't commit. Now, for any of you who haven't seen the show yet, this might be a good time to mute this podcast or step away from your computer for a few minutes. So Stephen Avery, this rough and tumble guy who grew up in a salvage yard, becomes the prime suspect in the rape of a woman on a Wisconsin beach in 1985. That same year, he's convicted. The counts, first-degree sexual assault, attempted first-degree murder, and false imprisonment. After 18 years in prison for this crime, though, he's exonerated. Based on advances in DNA testing and DNA evidence that not only proved Avery didn't commit the crime, it also pointed directly to another man. Now, the documentary series goes on, following Avery's life for a decade into this new legal entanglement. Long story short, he's back in prison, serving a life sentence this time for murder. I'm not going to get further into that though. You see, this is a really compelling documentary. It's been applauded by a lot of people and also picked apart by others. So I didn't really want to mention too much about it. I really just wanted to get into Avery's first conviction, his well-known wrongful one. Because what a lot of people outside of Fort Collins might not understand is that almost that exact same thing happened to another man, a man who lived here. To tell you about it though, I have to take you back to 1987 and I have to start with Peggy.
2: I had worked with Peggy the night before, which was on a Tuesday night.
0: That's Sandy Atchison, the first person I talked to when I started this project. She was Peggy Hedrick's boss at the Fashion Bar, a woman's specialty store in the Square Fashion Mall in Fort Collins. And the night she's talking about is February 10th, 1987.
2: She was off the next day on Wednesday, and so was I. Mm -hmm. Uh, We left together about 9 o'clock that night. I locked up the store, and we walked out together, and... uh, Peggy walked over across the street to her apartments, and I went home. The next day, I got a call from my assistant manager saying that um, the police were there, she was hysterical, and that Peggy was uh, killed. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know. I just said, what do you mean she was killed? Was she in an accident or what happened? And she said, no, she was murdered. Mm -hmm. And can you come in? And I said, I'll be right over
0: Peggy Hetrick's body was found early in the morning on February 11th, 1987, in the 3700th block of Landings Drive in Fort Collins, less than a mile from her apartment. She was found laying face up, her arms above her head. This is where it gets a little graphic. She was wearing a jacket, blouse, jeans, and red boots. Her bra and blouse were pushed up over her breasts. Her jeans and underwear were pulled down below her knees. Partially covered by her coat when discovered, you couldn't yet tell that her left areola had been cut off. And though the coroner wouldn't know this until deeper into his examination of her, she had been sexually mutilated. Parts of her vagina had been carefully excised. No pieces of her body from the genital mutilation or her nipple were ever recovered. She was a small woman, 5'2", 110 pounds. Her skin was ghostly white, a stark comparison to her bright red hair. Her eyes were open. Her purse was also still slung over her shoulder, with more than 50 random items inside. Nail polish, money, cigarettes... And all of her jewelry was still in its proper place, ruling out any sort of robbery motive. So before I started this project, um, I had this one image of Peggy Hetrick in my mind. And it was all based off of a photograph that's been used in the majority of articles and news reports since her murder. In the photo, she's in a blue dress, she's smiling a closed mouth smile, and she has that bright red curly hair. At the time of her death, her immediate family was made up of her brother, father, and grandmother. Her mother had died years before after Peggy had moved to Loveland to care for her. Her brother, who's still in the area, declined to comment for this project.
2: Uh, Peggy was um, quiet. She was pretty artistic. Mm -hmm. She she was sort of a free spirit. Um, And she would drift from one job to the other. but, But she really stayed on with us for about, when she came back the second time, she stayed on for about five years the mm-hmm. second time she came back. Mm-hmm. and um, But I think she was just trying to find herself, even though she was a little bit older, into her late 30s. Um, mm-hmm. But, I mean, I like Peggy. I didn't run around with her. I wasn't friends with her, necessarily. But she was always reliable and always looked nice. And, and um, uh, so, I mean, mm-hmm. she was well-liked with the other employees, easy to get along with, very non-aggressive,
0: I want to go back to something Sandy said. She says Peggy was just trying to find herself, and that kind of stuck with me. I've been trying to piece together who this woman was from things I've read, things people have told me, and that aligned with some other things I'd heard. She was 37, but her life wasn't in the place you'd probably expected to be at that age. She was single, more or less, working in town. She had a roommate. She didn't own a car. She was known to get around everywhere on foot, and because of that, her life was kind of set within these small boundaries of where she lived and worked. On a blog dedicated to this case, there are two photos, one of Peggy's desk and another of a bookshelf filled with books, trinkets, a little sculpture of a fish. Someone saw this and wrote in about the second photo. She noticed a vase on one of the shelves. It was an American Indian corn silk raku vase that Peggy had bought from the store this friend managed. She said in her comment on the blog that Peggy fell in love with the vase immediately and put it on layaway. She was always short on cash, the friend wrote. After nine months of payment, she was finally able to pick it up. She put two feathers in it, an admirer of Native American culture. In the same month of her death, her co-workers at the fashion bar sent a letter to the editor, to the Coloradoan. In it, they described her as a talented, creative, sensitive woman. They said she brought a sense of quiet peace everywhere she went. She'd been looking forward to a vacation to finish the novel she'd been writing, and she was seldom without a book. In fact, a library book was among the items found in her purse on the morning she was discovered. Her friends from work described her as bright, independent, and giving. She was thoughtful, and I'm not sure if spiritual is the right word, but it comes to mind. She was excited about the discovery of the blue arches, these unusual glowing blue arches discovered in early 1987 by astronomers. And her friends say, Peggy was lonely. That kind of piqued my interest a bit. In the letter to the editor, they write, She was not unique in searching for someone to share intimately the joy she experienced in the beauties of life. On the morning Peggy's body was found, one person that saw all of these things I mentioned, her desk, her bookshelf, her personal effects, was Detective Linda Wheeler Holloway. Wheeler Holloway worked at the Fort Collins Police Department, and you'll hear more about her. Her role was pretty big in the early years of the investigation and onward. In the early 1990s, she ended up taking on the role of lead investigator in Peggy's murder. But on that morning in 1987, she was given the job of processing Peggy's apartment. I asked her what that was like.
3: Well... I learned a lot of I, that's one thing that's you know when you when you process a crime scene particularly when you get to uh, learn about the victim because um, at the time she there was two and a half months difference between her age and my age at the time she was 37 I was 37 I am I just turned 67 I haven't forgotten about this case and there's not a day I don't think about it but uh, I really you spend a lot of time in a victim's world learning about them and I did. Um, spent a lot of time in her apartment to learn about, about Peggy and her, you know, what she's like when she was alive. Cause that really gives you an insight to her, you know, to her, to her world and her mind and what was going on in her world and her roommates and her family. And, uh, that was one of the most interesting things, you know, that I love doing with, with, uh, working homicides is you have to spend a lot of time in, in getting to know your victim and, um, uh, that was that was interesting because I was the one that then had to break it to her roommate that she was dead. Uh, her mm-hmm. her aging grandmother, her mother had died several years before of cancer, mm-hmm. and her father and brother were living out of state. So her grandmother was her her very close person to her. E. C. Hetrick and she she came to the department that morning while I was there, and I had to tell her. And she collapsed, and I remember it being very hard of having to do death notifications. The coroner does that, but in that place, there was nothing else to do but disclose why why we were there.
0: Besides processing her apartment, officers also canvassed the area around the field and tried to track down Peggy's movements on the night of February 10th and early hours of February 11th. So this was a general timeline put together by police. Peggy had worked that night, like Sandy said, and clocked out of the fashion bar at 9.01 p.m., she lived less than half a mile from the Fashion Bar, which is around where Trader Joe's is now, 3500 South College Avenue. She lived in the Aspen Leaf Apartments on Stover Street. But back then, the area between the Fashion Bar and her apartment was a lot more open. The Marriott Hotel, which is located as a, at a kind of middle spot between the two points, wasn't there. It was just kind of a field. So she gets off work, she walks home, and she tries to get inside. Now, Peggy had a regular roommate, but she was out of the state. Instead, she had a friend crashing with her, often referred to as a a sort of temporary roommate. Anyway, Peggy gets home, and she tries to get into her apartment, but can't. She's locked out, and either her friend is there and asleep, or not in the apartment yet. Either way, Peggy leaves her apartment and heads to the Laughing Dog Saloon. This was one of the bars she frequented a lot. Like I said, she lived within this small area of town, um, and and that bar was located around Horsetooth Road and College Avenue, so not a big walk from her apartment. She stopped at the Laughing Dog Saloon and found out that she had missed her friend and temporary roommate who'd been drinking at the bar that night. She then went to the Prime Minister, another favorite watering hole of hers, located on South College Avenue. It's where the current Olive Garden stands, and it's a little less than half a mile away from the Laughing Dog, about a seven-minute walk. There, she settles in a little more. According to testimony from Lieutenant James Broderick, A bartender at the Prime Minister puts her there until 9.40 p.m. There, she had a few drinks, made some calls from the bar's payphone. I assume she was trying to wake up her temporary roommate. She leaves the Prime Minister, and it's unclear where she goes next. Still in her work clothes, a tannish jacket and matching skirt, her location isn't really known until around midnight when she finally gets home, gets in, changes, and heads back out to the Prime Minister. In that almost two-and-a-half-hour gap between leaving the Prime Minister and making it home, though, Lieutenant Broderick testified once that she could have possibly stopped at her on-again, off-again boyfriend's apartment, which was about four blocks from the Prime Minister. It's hazy whether or not she did stop there. There was a note found in her purse when she was killed that she'd written to that boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend. It's really hard to nail down what the status of their relationship was. He was a little younger than her, and they dated for a while, but weren't, it seems, super solid. In the 2012 book, Drawn to Injustice, it's mentioned that friends of Peggy's said she'd spy on this boyfriend from time to time, sometimes sitting on the curb by his apartment, waiting to see if he'd drive home with a girl in his car, or even go so far at once to hide in his apartment and see if he'd come home alone. She'd also apparently written in her journal three weeks prior to her death that he'd come over and professed his love to her about 63 times, she wrote. Oh, I hope it works out, she said. But this note in her purse that was found was addressed to this boyfriend and basically just explained her situation, that she was locked out, that she might need a place to stay for the night if she couldn't get into her place. I have no idea when she wrote this note or if she went to drop it off at her boyfriend's apartment, but in Broderick's testimony, he said police found prints matching Peggy's shoes in the area in front of the the boyfriend's apartment. They also found some cigarette butts, brands that Peggy was known to smoke. Um, And In Broderick's testimony, he mentioned something like three or four cigarette butts are found out there. I asked a friend of mine, a longtime smoker, how long it would casually take to smoke four cigarettes, as if you are just sitting around trying to kill time. He estimated around 45 minutes. These details could give insight into where she went that night, but other court documents say it's unknown when Peggy wrote the note and if she actually went to the boyfriend's apartment to drop it off. I also want to mention it would have probably been a lot more difficult to nail down the exact time things happened back then. Maybe today, if I was asked that question, I could say, oh yeah, I remember texting a friend right after I saw her walk in that night. Then I could look at that text and find a pretty exact approximate time. There wasn't anything like that back then. This was the late 80s, no cell phones, just kind of what you remembered. I don't know what it was like investigating this back then, but I could see that being difficult. One person will put her leaving the bar at 940, while another person says they saw her there at 945. It's just a little shaky. This shakiness kind of continues into laying out the timeline of when Peggy got home and finally got into her apartment. A woman who worked in Greeley but lived off of Landings Drive at the time testified that she was driving home from work. She worked a later shift and got home around approximately midnight. When neighborhoods surrounding the field on Landings were canvassed on February 11th, this woman told police that, yeah, she actually had seen something. When she was driving home the night before, there was a petite woman walking south on Landings Drive. She remembered this because that was the direction in which she was driving to get home. The woman she saw was walking in the same direction the driver was driving. She was walking in the bike lane on the west side of the street, and she was seen clutching something, maybe holding a bag or holding her arms because it was cold. Of note, this direction that this walker would have been walking would have been away from Peggy's apartment, not towards it. Anyway, the driver never caught a glimpse of the walker's face. She saw her hair, describing it as blonde and cut a little short. and She testified that she remembered this because you usually don't see someone walking around at that hour in that neighborhood. It was quiet, residential, not really that well lit. In an affidavit, Lieutenant Broderick lists the time the driver sees the woman at 12.05 a.m. So if this person, this driver, saw Peggy, this would prove that she'd walked on landings that night, that it was her walking route. A neighbor also places Peggy at her apartment around the same time this driver said she saw the woman walking. The neighbor, you see, watched Star Trek every night around 11 and 1130, and he had a timer set to automatically shut off the TV when the show ended. It went off every night at midnight. The night of February 10th, he's woken up by Peggy pounding on the door to her apartment, trying to wake her temporary roommate. He told police he remembers the screen of his television being black when this happened, which means she would have gotten there around midnight or right after. In Broderick's affidavit, Peggy got into her apartment, changed really, really fast, and then, I guess because the driver's account is mentioned, was on 37, the 37th block of landings at 12.05. This is where things get a little hazy. To get to the 37th block of landings from Peggy's apartment, it would have taken her roughly six or seven minutes to walk there, and that would have had to been after she already went home and changed. She would have had to be moving really quickly for the driver to have seen her there at 12.05, and if she was walking at that point in that route at that time, she would have probably made it to the Prime Minister about 10 minutes earlier than her boyfriend, or ex-boyfriend, and a bartender remember seeing her there. The next known sighting of Peggy is made by this ex-boyfriend. He puts her in the parking lot of the Prime Minister around 12.30 a.m. when he's driving into that same lot. A bartender also puts them coming into the bar together around 12.30. According to this Broderick affidavit, the ex-boyfriend is there to meet another girl. In another account, it's mentioned that he meets this other girl at another bar in Fort Collins, and they both agree to leave and meet up later at the Prime Minister. So when Peggy and the ex-boyfriend get into the prime minister, the bartender recalls them having a couple drinks together before this other woman shows up. It's unclear what kind of exchange they had after this. I've heard it characterized as a bit of a fight, but either way, Peggy ends up making a call on the bar's payphone and then leaving. The boyfriend end up, ends up staying, and he goes home with his other woman. They're together at his apartment until 3 or 3.30 in the morning, according to her. The affidavit goes on to say the exact time Peggy leaves the bar, around 1.20 in the morning. From there, it's unclear what happens. Peggy's last seen alive leaving the prime minister. And almost seven hours later, her body is found by a cyclist riding to work.
1: As I remember there were a couple of ducks that took off from the field, and I looked over to see what that was and saw what I thought was a mannequin in the field.
0: By the way, the cyclist asked me not to use his name in the podcast. He has some not-so-fond memories of being flooded by calls from reporters after his name was published in the Coloradoan in 1987, and his kids, who were in school at the time, kept getting peppered with questions from other kids about their dad finding a dead body. And
1: if I looked uh, a little more, it's like, huh, that doesn't look like a mannequin. And I think it's maybe 30 yards um, off the road as a guess. Um, So I stopped my bike and got off and looked, and and then I looked down, and right close to where I was standing was, um, like, some piles of blood, and then I could see it went over the curb and out into the field, and I'm very thankful I did not go out there this morning, uh, that morning, so I uh, went down to a friend's house uh, a couple blocks away, and that was before cell phones, so I called 911 and talked to the operator, and Reported what I saw, and they verified that with me. They're like a body, like a human body. I'm like yes, I think so.
0: What comes next is the investigation into Peggy's murder. Who would do this? Someone might ask. But one big question police had at the time: Why did a teenager walking through the field that morning see her and not say anything? Next time on People vs. Masters: Making a Murderer in Fort Collins.
1: You know, Masters um, had the unfortunate circumstance of living at a corner uh, in a in a trailer with his father, and there was a field behind the trailer that people used to dump stuff in. They weren't
3: wealthy. He was going to an affluent high school. He was a scrying kid. He
1: walked over and looked, and it looked like a human body, but he wasn't quite sure. This is a no medical procedure. He said, this, this is not some haphazard kid just cutting away.
3: I mean, none of it made any sense.